The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. On this week's show, my guest is Alan Lim, founder of Scratch Labs. In 2012, sports physiologist Alan Lim upended the conventional wisdom on cycling and hydration with the launch of his company, Scratch Labs. Through his work with Slipstream Sports, known for many years as Team Garmin, and later Lance Armstrong's Radio Shack team, Lim's research demonstrated that the proper solution for a sports drink was only about 3%, as opposed to the much stronger 6-8% to mix levels that prevailed at the time. With a lighter taste and only enough sugar and electrolytes to speed fluid absorption, Scratch had a seismic impact on the hydration market. In the wake of Scratch Labs came Osmo, which uses a somewhat similar approach, and brands like Cliff and Goo Energy reformulated their existing drink mixes in response to Scratch Labs. Since the company's launch in 2012, Scratch Labs has gone on to introduce energy drops, a daily drink mix, a stronger mix for hot climates, a rescue formulation for people with gastric illnesses, not to mention a chocolate chip cookie mix for on-the-bike fueling, and a new energy bar. With partner Bijou Thomas, Lim wrote the Feed Zone Portables cookbook, which steers readers away from traditional high sugar products and back to natural foods that have a higher mix of protein and fat. Other books have followed, including the Feed Zone Cookbook and the Feed Zone Table. With that, I'd like to welcome Alan Lim to The Pull. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, so let's start with some basics, why don't we? Uh, for listeners sure. who don't know your background, um, why don't you give us a little bit about your origin story? You know, first as a bike racer, but then sure. obviously we need to talk about you and your PhD. Yeah, yeah. Well, my origin story, uh, especially as it like relates to bike racing, is is a Los Angeles story. Uh, but pre- prior to that, um, I like to tell people that all of my parts are from China, uh, so I'm Chinese. But I was actually made in the Philippines. Uh, my parents immigrated from the Philippines to Los Angeles, and so I was basically programmed in America. And in Los Angeles, which pe- most people don't think about, 
as being a cycling-friendly city, my brother and I were essentially latchkey kids, and we began to explore the city of Los Angeles through the bicycle. And the, Los Angeles is actually a super-friendly cycling community. Can be, um, yeah. There are tons, yeah, tons of group rides, and uh, we eventually ended up in uh, the Burbs, uh, just below Montrose, California, mm-hmm. which is between Glendale and La Crescenta by the Angeles Crest Forest. And there was a great cycling uh, bike shop their club uh, called the Montrose Cycling Team. Yep. And uh, my brother and I initially got into racing bicycles through the Boy Scouts of America, but then we found this great club in our community. And it was the Montrose Cycling Club, you know, with kids like Halden Morris and Freddie Rodriguez and Antonio Cruz uh, that were all part of this team where we cut our teeth and we ended up doing, you know, these these little training rides around the Rose Bowl and these Saturday morning rides out to San Dimas. And it was a That Montrose ride is a crazy ride. It's a crazy (laughs) ride. Yeah. And and not only do we find excitement and craziness in those rides, but we found a whole community of mentors. There were so many older riders who uh, were willing to take the time to help us out, to, you know, hold little mock time trials for us, to teach us the basic skills and the etiquette around being a bike racer. And it was through that experience that I basically fell in love with cycling and tried to kind of figure out how I could make cycling part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it became part of my life uh, by first attending the University of California, Davis, which is, again, another really, really strong cycling culture. Yeah, uh, I was part of the collegiate cycling team, and so collegiate cycling uh, is near and dear to me. I ended up helping to coach the uh, team in 1994. Uh, the UC Davis cycling team went on to win the national collegiate title that year. It was the first time that they ever did that. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, that, 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 that community and the coaching side when I was in college, that was, I think my real education. Um, I ended up studying exercise science when I was at UC Davis. And so I figured, Hey, this is a perfect combination, you know, uh, applying my exercise science knowledge to helping others become better. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to the university of Colorado Boulder. It was at CU Boulder that I began coaching the women's cycling, uh, collegiate team there and also did my master's degree. Um, again, you know, I was always kind of plotting to combine my education with, you know, applying that to, 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 to cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was getting kind of a very academic knowledge, knowledge base, and I was able to figure out how to apply that by coaching. Um, after my master's degree, I ended up at USA cycling at the Olympic training center as a resident coach. Uh, then I went back and got my PhD. My PhD work revolved around, um, you know, what was then the the power tap. Yep. Um, so I was part of uh, a, a team when the Sarah Cycling Group purchased that IP uh, from eTune to, you know, help to continue to work and develop uh, that that technology. That became effectively the basis of my PhD work. And so I finished my PhD with with all of this this knowledge that was very, very specific to cycling. Um, that was by design, but, you know, trying to figure out how to make a career of that, that was, you know, kind of all up in the air. Sure. Uh, uh, so I think I got really lucky with the breaks I got um, and the opportunities I got in professional cycling. So that's the background. You know, it's, it's all a love for cycling. Right, right. But I mean, you went you went long and deep on coaching and guiding athletes. Um, and so, uh, not to skip too far ahead, but before there was scratch labs, uh, there was secret drink mix. Um, and so 
you know, it's a funny thing for a guy who's guiding athletes to suddenly think, oh, I'm going to make my own drink mix. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, talk to us about how that happened. Let, let's talk about, you know, necessity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, secret drink mix, uh, which preceded scratch labs was, was, was never intentional. So, you know, in some ways, um, as much as scratch labs was intentional, the idea of making my own drink mix and selling it uh, was not, uh, all I ever wanted to do was solve the problems that my athletes face. I think that in sports science, we're often thought of as individuals who help athletes obtain marginal gains, you know, that little extra tiny percent that might mean the difference between winning and losing. But my experience in professional cycling was very different. I realized very early on that if you didn't take care of bottlenecks or the rate limiting factor, marginal gains never mattered. And almost every bottleneck manifests itself in some sort of complaint, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the athletes I worked with constantly complained about is they constantly complained that their sports nutrition made them feel sick, whether it was a dry energy bar that felt like a brick in their their stomach or whether it was an over-flavored, too sweet sports drink that didn't have enough salt that that ended up giving them gut rot. And so for me, I started to try to solve these problems in a very practical way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, very, very early on, you know, I realized that almost every athlete I I worked with, including myself, we would dilute our sports drink, right? Because they were typically too strong. But when we diluted the sports drink, we we weren't replacing the salt that we lost in our sweat, right? And so initially, as athletes were diluting their sports drink, I would just add back more salt to those drinks, right? Uh-huh. Or have the soigneurs add back that salt. Um, that helped. You know, from there, it was complaints, well, you know, I've got this bad taste in my mouth still, or I still have this gut rot. And so it was this very, very slow and progressive tinkering every season, constantly working, constantly trying to change things, buying things off the shelf, experimenting with different products. And eventually it got to the point where it just became easier to make the stuff from scratch, to make it on my own. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was those self-made drinks that we always had the best and most success with. Um, it was never my intent to start a sports drink company. And in fact, during that same time, I was also, you know, roaming the pro tour with a rice cooker, making little sushi rice cakes, right? right. And trying to make all of this food from scratch for the athletes I worked with. And, and that was the kind of funny secret about uh, this whole thing was that we were actually cooking real food from scratch the majority of the time rather than using the prepackaged sports nutrition that our sponsors were giving us. Um, and so, you know, eventually I ended up on Radio Shack. I was still making these rice cakes. I was still making the sports drink. But then the federal investigation began on Lance yep. um, and that effectively detonated my career, you know, uh, by association. I was no longer a welcome part of the Peloton, right? And I found myself back home in Boulder, Colorado, um, essentially not doing anything. And all of these athletes that I worked with were still asking me for this sports drink. Uh, initially, I was kind of like, you know, you can all go F yourself. Like, you know, I, I <laughs> thanks for nothing. Like, Thanks for nothing. You know, I'm I'm sitting here at home with literally trying to figure out what to do with my life. But then I would feel guilty because they were my friends. And so with my good friend, Ian McGregor, who I used to coach, who was part of the Slipstream squad, um, 
we started at first hand blending these drink mixes for our friends, putting them in Ziploc bags and shipping them, shipping them off to them. But then the demand got so great that we had to make more. And we figured out that if we could mix pre-mix all the ingredients in these food safe paint buckets from our local hardware store, we could use the paint shaker at the local hardware store and make more. Um, That's the part of the story that I best love. It's like you're using paint buckets and the paint shaker to make the drink mix. That's Uh, right. That's right. That's right. It really goes to the heart of, you know, determination and, you know, having to think outside of the box, you know, for solutions. I mean, this is yeah. this is truly classic creative thinking. Yeah. And, and you know, we we were just trying to help our friends out. Right. And we needed a way to make it less complex. And this seemed like a less complex way. And as the athletes got this stuff, you know, we were kind of joking that, uh wouldn't it be funny if we called this secret drink mix? Because nobody knew. We weren't marketing this stuff. We weren't intending to start a business. We were just helping our friends. But we found it really humorous that so many guys in the Pro Peloton were using drink mix that we made in a paint shaker at the local hardware store. Yep. Um, and we ended up setting up a website called secretdrinkmix.com. More of a joke uh, than anything and more it was as the a, most anti-website I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was, it was like a picture of a bunch of, uh, you know, piles of, of, of powder and you clicked on it and paid 20 bucks. And, you know, three days later, you got like a little foil bag of white powder, right? Um, <laughs> that, that's effectively what it was, yep. but it wasn't our, our intent to, to market this. And we were just trying to make it easy for ourselves to take orders, right. And to fulfill orders from effectively our friends. But by the summer of 2011, we started getting a lot of people who we didn't even know who were ordering this stuff. Then the word had gotten out. Um, it was all word of mouth. And we were getting these really positive emails from people saying that, that the drink mix really actually helped them. It helped them to enjoy something that was an integral part of their life. And for, for me and the rest of the team, at that point, it was myself, it was my old college roommate, Aaron, Aaron Foster, and it was Ian McGregor. We actually started to um, – be inspired by that, right? And mm-hmm. and by that fall, we started asking ourselves, are we just going to be hanging out and running this little secret drink biz, or is there something here? Um, Ian, you know, had an injury. He was back in school for mechanical engineering, so he was starting his life over again. Aaron, who had been an artist and a stand-up co- comic, um, he was trying to figure out if that was the direction he wanted to go, and he was starting his life over again. You know, I had previously been on the pro cycling tour and, you know, was effectively shunned, so I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, and we realized that you know, kind of my whole, you know, uh, architecture within pro cycling was this idea that food and drink was just better from scratch. And that was meaningful. But we also realized in ourselves that we were starting from scratch. And so that this, this idea of starting from scratch, this name scratch kept Mm -hmm. on coming up. And, uh, we took the little bit of money that we made with secret drink mix and we used it to create this new identity. And in February of 2012, we launched scratch labs, really not knowing anything about business, not knowing, you know, uh, what we were doing, but knowing that we were inspired by people who were buying secret drink mix. Mm. It's a, it's a pretty incredible story, especially considering, you know, that's only six years ago. Um, it's only six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and we had to kind of figure it out. And I think that that was maybe uh, our biggest asset. Our biggest asset and our biggest weakness was ignorance, right? We, we didn't know how to manage people. or I mean, we didn't even know on the first day that we launched Scratch how to actually print out 
you know, uh, our shipping orders. I mean, prior to that, we've been getting orders and literally just walking this stuff to the post office mm-hmm. and sending out packages that way. Right. Um, and now, you know, we're launching this new website where we, we've got this little printer and a scale from FedEx. We're trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together. And, you know, uh, it was, uh, a, a lot of learning for sure. 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 Now to back up, uh, just a little bit, uh, I want to drill down a little bit on the product itself. Um, you know, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are really familiar with how scratch differs from the majority of what's on the market. And, you know, it's also worthwhile to mention how many different companies have followed suit on what you've done. Uh, you led the way. And as I, you know, we've had conversations previously where I said, you don't want to be the only guy in a niche you know you don't want to be that kind of outlier that's Um, right but i can appreciate that maybe you don't want six copycats but yeah well it's already happened so it's all good right uh but so be that as it may what is it they're copycatting yeah sure well back when i first started making this sports drink when i was still on the pro cycling tour the only thing that was very unique or different was that because i was making everything from scratch it happened to be very simple right? It wasn't that complex. The basis of a sports drink is really, really simple. You're just trying to replace the water and the electrolytes that you lose in your sweat. 90% of that electrolyte is simple sodium chloride. Between sodium and chloride, it's the sodium that you really need to replace, not the chloride ion in terms of maintaining performance. If you don't maintain that sodium, uh, two things happen. One, your thirst mechanism kind of goes out of whack. And so your thirst mechanism, which is designed to maintain the proper sodium balance in your body, now basically is preventing you from drinking enough or it's turning off before you drink enough. Uh, Effectively, you know, if you think about your body as a big pool, right, and uh, a normal pool needs a certain amount of chlorine in it for it to stay stay clean. Well, your body is a big pool. It needs a certain amount of sodium in it for electrical currents to be able to propagate for your body to function normally, for cells to function normally. And so as you lose water, right? If all you lost was water, you just put a hose in your pool and you fill it back to water at the same level, right? And your thirst mechanism is designed not to look at how much water is in the pool, but to look at the concentration. So the assumption is, is you lose water, the concentration of sodium increases, you get thirsty, you drink water, you lose a liter of water, no salt. Well, you drink a liter of water, you stop being thirsty, everything is perfect. Mm -hmm. But when you exercise, what's happening is not only are you losing water, but you're also losing salt, right? And so if I lose a thousand milligrams of sodium, per liter of salt, which is average, and my normal blood sodium is 3,500 milligrams of sodium per liter, I'm still losing more water than salt. So as I sweat, the concentration goes up, I get thirsty. But since there's already a certain amount of salt that's been lost, I don't need to drink a liter of water to fulfill my thirst, right, to satiate my thirst. Mm-hmm. And so I end up drinking only, say, two-thirds before I'm not thirsty. And so what happens over time is I'm slowly dehydrating, even though I'm drinking to my thirst. Now, if I 
weigh myself and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not thirsty, but I've lost weight and all I do is drink plain water, you get an even worse situation where you start to dilute out your blood sodium level and your electrolyte balance goes way out of whack. The easy solution is simply to replace the salt that you lose in your sweat. And so that was the basis of it. The basis was, okay, first, let's try to replace the same amount of sodium in this drink mix that we're giving to athletes is lost in sweat. That's first and foremost. That's the basis of hydration. Second, let's replace a little bit of sugar so that you know they can have some external source of energy without hurting their gut. And that means probably less sugar than a standard sports drink. Mm-hmm. And then let's try to make it taste good without bombing out somebody's palate. And for us, what we ended up finding was that if we use a natural flavoring agent, which was the chemical structure of a flavor, that there was nothing that we could do to prevent that flavor fatigue. And so we ended up using whole freeze-dried fruit because you get this big molecule that parts some flavor, but since it's still part of a whole entire food, it washes away really clean off of the off of the palate. And that was our innovation. Our innovation was less sugar. It was only fruit for flavor. And it was the same sodium as what's lost in sweat. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything extra per se. And it was something that you could literally make in a paint shaker. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, at the time and still now, people are looking for these really technological solutions. Yeah. Right. Multidextrin. Yeah, or whatever it is, and 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 people are looking for that science story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was funny for me was that despite the fact that I was using science, I wasn't selling my athletes this this product because of science. I was they were the ones informing me as to whether or not it worked or didn't work, right? Right. and they didn't really care if the the simpler kind of more dumbed down version work better. They just cared that it worked better. Um, And so I think what we did when we, you know, kind of launched Secret Drink Mix and then Scratch Labs was we gave people permission to use something that didn't have, that wasn't a chemical shit show, you know? And (laughs) and that's all we really did. All we really did was we gave people permission to to trust their own instincts and trust their own feelings and to realize that simpler was better. And and this isn't, uh, you know, kind of a world-changing paradigm. It's actually a pretty simple paradigm. But soon after, within a year of launching Scratch Labs, we had, you know, most of uh, the companies out there, you know, the cliff bars of the world, the goos of the world, um, copying and changing their formulas as well. So I think we did something positive for the sports drink community, at least in endurance sports. Um, and, and, and for that, we feel very, very proud. Um, you know, and so there are a lot of good products out there. I think that, you know, since we launched Scratch, we probably have gone through three, four different uh, iterations or formula updates. Uh, mm-hmm. We haven't, you know, um, you know, vocalize that, but we're constantly learning from our customers, constantly learning from athletes. And so for me, this whole process from the pro tour through, you know, starting scratch labs has been a learning experience. Um, and uh, the more customers that we have, uh, the more athletes who use our product, the more feedback that I get, which continues to, to roll back into improvements in the formula. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I find so interesting is that, you know, you were working with people at the very limit of human performance. So you were you were working in a crucible of kind of absolutes. You know, you were working with, you know, the most highly trained athletes. These were also people who were exceedingly competent at monitoring their fueling and their hydration. That's right. Uh, right. So they weren't 
idiots like me who get behind on their hydration because the event's too hard. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of the, the in a way, the perfect crucible uh, sure. to, to test a product and find out, well, you know, is this going to work on these people who have almost zero margin of error at this point? Everything right. has well, to be right. Well, the crucible is this, is that while they might be elite athletes, they're also very fragile. They're canaries in a coal mine, mm-hmm. right? And when you get something wrong, they're the first ones to literally die in the coal mine, right? Because Interesting. they're so much more sensitive to what's going into their body, right? Right. And so there was a kind of a unique paradox here. Yeah, I got to work with some incredible athletes, but these athletes were extraordinarily sensitive. And it was their intuition and their sensitivity and the fact that they were these canaries that allowed me to get a lot of really great data points for what to what worked and what didn't work. Okay, and so give me some idea. You you know, when we met that time in Tucson, you probably gave me this and I just don't recall, but how many seasons of paint buckets in your apartment were there before you launched Secret? How many seasons well, of, of powder yeah. floating around your apartment were there? Sure. There are probably about five seasons of that. And, you know, at that time it wasn't paint buckets, but there were blenders. Um, And it was everything from, you know, what kind of salt do we need to add back to these drink mixes to experiments with different Kool-Aid flavored drinks. I mean, it was, it was across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't really start the paint buckets until we had kind of nailed a drink mix that we knew worked and we needed to start making that in large scale quantities. Right. Um, and it was funny because large scale back then in a paint bucket was 100, 150 pounds in a day. Um, now we can blend probably 3,000 pounds in an hour. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yay, factories. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Okay, so a big part of what this podcast is about is craft and sure. the investment someone makes in their skill set to be good at something. Yeah. Uh, part yeah. of this is a reaction of all the instant fame out there of, yeah. you know oh i've got an instagram following now i'm now i'm great no i you know i'm interested in people who've spent time learning how to be good at something sure and sometimes we don't always think of like hard science as craft it's so yeah. so logic driven so mathematical um you know but not that that's a correct perception in any way formulating yeah. your own drink mix has the air of a home shop tinkerer um you know i'm i'm wondering in terms of all those iterations you know what sort of degrees of change were there like when you would obviously you had some idea okay we need we need less flavoring we need less sugar we need more salt um yeah so these were fairly tiny degrees you were working through if i understand correctly yeah that's right that's right Pretty, pretty tiny degrees. And, you know, with, with the idea of craft in mind, here's the distinction that, that I tend to make. You know, I grew up in this academic world of science. That's where I learned my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And in academia, there is a distinction between what is called science versus what is called practice. Right. Science is 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 the theory, the knowledge base, the fact, uh, you know, being able to, to, to run an experiment and see if you can falsify it. You can prove it true or not true. Um, but practice is actually going out there in the real world and doing something about it. And mm-hmm. academics are uh, very careful to distinguish whether they are doing science or whether they are doing practice. OK. And for me in the field. 
I was almost always practicing, right? Mm -hmm. Because we didn't know if what we were doing for the athletes was right or wrong because we had no way to control for it. Each athlete became their own scientific experiment, if you will. Okay. That being said, everything was informed by science. And as I started thinking about this distinction between science and practice, what came up for me when I was on the pro tour, and, and it's so interesting that you have this podcast about craft, I started thinking about the combination of science and practice as being craft. Yeah, right? I like it. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. It, it makes perfect sense because you are indeed experimenting. You are indeed going through a trial and error process. You are gathering facts. You are learning and you are making incremental changes. And while it's not exactly science and it's not exactly practice, mm -hmm. it is craft. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I really, I really appreciate the the idea and the sentiment, and I think that in large part this was formed through craft. Um, it was not a complex product, and so while there were many iterations from year to year to year, they were you know iterations that were based upon uh, little points of feedback that I would get from my athletes, you know, on a on a weekly or yearly basis. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And it was always the question: How did it taste? How do you feel? Do you think we could do? Uh, more salt, less salt. Let's weigh ourselves before and after every training ride, and let's figure out, you know, how much salt individuals are losing, and you know what the what the right equilibrium is for the whole entire team. And, and, and you just start to learn these different lessons, right, through those experiments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So then, if I understand you correctly, you know, by looking through one lens, you know, your career had already been big on practice, working with athletes, coaching right. athletes, guiding athletes. That's right. That's right. Um, so the practice of creating a drink mix was by one method of thinking, not that different from what your career had already been. Yeah, I would say that, you know, my career, especially on the coaching side, on the training side, training design side, that was by and large practice. You know, a lot of the recipes that I made for uh, the athletes, that was by and large practice. I think that when we got to the level of the sports drinks and got to, you know, even investigating how much sodium they lost in their sweat, that became more craft, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that there's a gradation between science to practice and somewhere in the middle is craft. Um, you know, starting this company was definitely craft because we had to be very careful about those formulations, about manufacturing, about the standards, about supply chain, about safety practices, etc. Right. Wow. Um, and so there were a lot of rule sets that we had to to, to learn. Um, you know, uh, after a certain number of, of of sales, making something in a paint bucket at your local hardware store uh, doesn't qualify as a food product. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, realizing that we wanted to start a food company, realizing that we would be under the guise of the FDA, that opened up a whole nother level of both craft and practice. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A, so a much it, more it, stringent set of, of responsibilities. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so, yeah, I like this notion of craft because ultimately um, – Everything that, that you might be doing in practice that you want to replicate, that you've shown to you know, at least help make athletes better relative to what is currently available, um, I think that that sets itself as craft, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, if anything, um, useful, right? And it's pragmatic. Uh, whereas oftentimes science uh, 
doesn't necessarily lend itself to a solution, especially basic science, where you're trying to get some small piece of information that might connect to another puzzle piece. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So to to back up a little bigger picture now. So you've chased all this science. You've worked with these athletes. You come up with this drink mix. Um, At some point, you had to back up and look at, okay, we're going to start selling this. This completely defies the orthodoxy of what everyone thinks about sports drinks. What was that moment like for you? Was it scary or was it sort of exhilarating or like, we're going to shake this mother up? Yeah, I I think it wasn't really – it wasn't really anything in the sense that uh, I didn't think that we were going to shake anything up, right? I mean, uh, I think that I maybe had the same feelings that my parents had when they first opened up their own little Chinese restaurant in, you know, Redondo Beach in California, Uh right? Which is like, oh, shit, this better work because we got bills to pay. Crap. Right. It's not like, you know, like like I've got some epic solution that's going to change the world because I always thought of our drink mix as being extraordinarily simple. And, you know, I, I used to share with athletes how to make this stuff, but they were just too lazy to do it themselves. Right. Um, so for me, in some ways, it was an attempt to, uh, to, to stand and, and, and be something more than I was. It was uh, a way to take a risk on myself and on, on my good friends. It was a way for us to uh, try to understand if we could actually start our lives over again, if we could go through the transition of giving up one identity for another identity without having any kind of clear idea of what, what that direction was. Mm-hmm. And so it was scary, but it wasn't scary for the reason that we felt a weight on ourselves in terms of, you know, creating a product that might change the sports nutrition world, it was a weight of whether or not we could be successful ourselves and whether or not we would actually enjoy going through this personal transformation, right? Um, It very much was the, um, the, the fear that goes with starting your life over from scratch, Right. Um, and you know, hence the name, um, beyond that, you know, there were many times where we weren't looking beyond anything, but our own survival. Right. And how do we solve this problem? And there are so many problems when you start a company that you end up being a little more kind of, you know, myopic in terms of just trying to solve those problems. And the time goes by really, really fast. And you almost have to force yourself to step away from it at times and say, hey, what's the bigger vision here? What's the bigger belief system here? What's the bigger meaning or purpose that we're trying to, to move towards? Right, right. Well, yeah, so back to, uh, you know, that that day to day uh, crunch to make sure you're creating something that is successful enough to live another day. One of my favorite parts of the story that you've told previously is how you and your partners bootstrapped the operation. Yeah. Talk to us about bill triage. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, initially, I mean, we were literally, we had this simple business model. The model was, okay, we could make 100 pounds, which meant that we had to sell 100 pounds. We would take the money and we'd put it in a thing called a bank. And we would use that money to try to make 200 or 300 pounds and repeat the process so that we would grow. We only had one financial rule because we were so unsophisticated about our understanding of business. And that business rule was, never spend more money than is in the bank, right? (laughs) Um, And what that meant was that at times, uh, 
we had to prioritize each other's bills that if somebody had a bill to pay between myself, Ian and, and Aaron, that, well, it's just like whatever was due first. Right. Mm-hmm. And we effectively pulled our money into a collective. Um, and so despite, you know, trying to succeed in this very capitalistic world, uh, this free market that we we now found ourselves in, you know, at least amongst the team, we had to behave in a very socialistic fashion, right? Uh, just so that we could actually take care of ourselves to take care of this business. That being said, it was in the simple rule of not being able to spend more money than was in the bank, that we came up with extraordinarily creative solutions to things that we didn't even think were solutions at the time or that we didn't even think were innovative at the time. So for example, we wanted to go to bike races and we wanted to go to local events um, to basically market and showcase our product. And we thought that this was the nature of guerrilla marketing. But what we didn't realize was that uh, an event like Sea Otter or Tour of California or wherever you may, you may, you may go, you've got to pay thousands thousands of dollars to be part of those expos. Yep. We didn't have thousands of dollars to either pay for the expo space or pay for the travel or you know, pay for the staff to be there. And so Bijou Thomas came up with this idea. He came up to me and was like, Al, what if we actually bought a food truck and we went to these events and we could make cash real time? You know, his idea was, I think we can make enough money selling burritos or rice bowls that we could pay for all the costs associated with showcasing Scratch Labs. We did the math and we realized that this was potentially the case. We found this food trailer in South Carolina for $18,000. We had $20,000 in the bank. So we literally like, you know, gambled, spent that 18 grand. We borrowed a truck from our friends at Nissan. And the next thing you know, Bijou and I are literally driving around the country, going from event to event, cooking food, making cash real time for us to be out there. It was like Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. (laughs) Only it tasted much, much better. And it it worked. Um, What we didn't realize was the effect, the positive effect, was that we were creating moments and experiences for people who came up to our booth that exceeded simply showing up at a at a tent and trying a drink mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. And, and we realize in that that uh and this has become a big ethos of our company is that it's not necessarily the product it's the hospitality yeah. right it's the care it's the nurturing it's looking at looking out for people that that really matters in this community yeah and on a personal note, I really miss seeing your truck at Sea Otter. I mean, that's that's how I would feed myself when I was there. That's right. That's yeah. right. You know, uh, we 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 thought of ways to try to bring it back this year, but it was so expensive because when we first started doing it, we were breaking a lot of rules. I mean, like we didn't even have like you know C dot registration for for driving that thing around. Um, we didn't even have the proper liability insurance. And you know, in hindsight, we look at what we did and we think, oh my god, that was so stupid. <laughs> uh, and if we can figure a way to actually do it in a way that uh, doesn't 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 kill our crew or anyone else, then we'll definitely be back. Uh, this year, we were basically just handing out free burritos, you know, <laughs> in lieu of having the food truck out there. Uh, but Bijou now has the food trailer, and he also has two little restaurants, Bijou's little curry shop. And so we're going to try to do a bunch of local events out of his restaurant through the food trailer, at least in Colorado, uh, through the rest of the summer. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So now build triage, grow the company, and today scratch labs has how many investors 
we don't our, have our owners. any investors per se. Uh, you know, the, the three primary owners are myself and then Ian McGregor and Aaron Foster. We do have a bunch of friends and families, uh, members who chipped in early on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're all, you know, private shareholders. We raised a total of about 300,000 to manage our cash flow our first year, but we never ended up using that money. Um, so it's kind of funny because we thought we needed a certain amount to start this company and we ended up being able to do it entire off of sales. And so we have, uh, I think hopefully a lot of grateful friends who are part of this enterprise, uh, but we're wholly private. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have any professional investors who are involved in Scratch. Uh, we don't have a, a board of directors. We don't have you know, a, a chair. We don't have anything that is uh, conventional in terms of uh, uh, thinking about a company that has an exit strategy. You know, Our exit strategy was to take care of ourselves, and it continues to, 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 to be so, and to hopefully create the best brand and the best company um, as we can. Uh, for me today, that means, you know, how do I take care of our customers? How do I take care of our employees? Um, So we're very, very fortunate to have that freedom and to not be beholden to anyone. (laughs) Absolutely remarkable. I I love that. I mean, you know, from all appearances, you were pursuing you know, a life that straddled some something between the real world and academia. Uh, I mean, getting a PhD, um, you know, most people they like to march around and, you know, yeah, Dr. Alan Lim, um, yeah, that's right. that's you right. know, it's like, okay, I'll see that in a press release, but you don't, yeah. nobody calls you doctor, you know, the, the better. No, not really. Unless they're, unless they're trying to make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, so, I mean, uh, uh, you know, instead of doing that, you started a nutrition company. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you've explained, pretty well i think uh how that happened but um i'd like you you know just in closing let's talk about the entrepreneurial ed, uh yeah. uh urge um sure. you know i mean obviously you're fulfilling um a core mission of yours as an exercise physiologist to yep. help uh athletes pursue uh their passion and be more successful in pursuing that yeah but at some point for you to still be involved in this some aspect of being an entrepreneur caught hold in you um and you you really relish this business that you've created talk absolutely talk about the passion that grew there yeah, well, first I'll start with the kind of academic side because I think that for me, going in academia, getting my PhD was this arc of uh, research and science that I'm equally as passionate about. And I would easily say that the happiest I've ever been and the proudest I've ever been is when I'm in front of a classroom teaching a bunch of students and I know I'm getting through. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, For me, that's one of the most gratifying things. And I think that I would have been very, very happy to stay in academia. And I very much thought that my life career path was going to be that I was going to become a professor somewhere. Right. 
But what happened and what changed things was life. Um, the year that I finished my PhD was the same year that my dad died. And so I needed a period of time to just mourn uh, his passing. And I ended up you know, going back to my mom's in California after I finished my doctorate. And I literally just found myself hitting golf balls from her front yard out into the park across the street. Right. And it was at this time that I was just trying to take a breath that I got a call from Floyd Landis, who asked if, you know, I would help him with that year's tour. And the reality was, was I was only asked to help because people knew that I was taking time off. People knew that I had nothing to do. And I remember Floyd literally saying, hey, word on the street is that you're not doing anything right now. And, you know, my initial reaction was, hey, you can go F yourself. Like, I'm doing plenty. <laughs> um, but, but it was that detour in life. And you can never predict these detours that, you know – that landed me on the pro cycling tour and the next seven years of my life kind of just disappeared on mm -hmm. the pro circuit. Right. Um, and as suddenly as the, my life on the pro cycling tour started, my life on the pro cycling tour ended. And again, it wasn't something that I chose. It was something that just happened. You know, the circumstances around that were fully out of my own control. Mm -hmm. Um, so the entrepreneurial spirit for me wasn't about um, chasing after something. It wasn't about ambition, right? I think that what I learned in academia, because academia, uh, despite its kind of ivory tower sentiment, is actually a very ambitious and very cutthroat environment. Oh, yeah. Uh, what I learned in academia was that ambition is a very easy thing to hide behind until you realize it's all you have. And I also learned that in pro sports. And as I found myself, you know, uh, kind of starting over again, that was the last thing that I wanted. So my entrepreneurial spirit, I think, ha ha is adopted out of what I saw in my own parents when they immigrated to the United States, which was survival, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, uh, just finding a way through. But in that challenge, I found so much satisfaction. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it might be cliche to say this, but, you know, my entrepreneurial spirit is very much driven on what is the myth of the American dream, if it is a mythology. Mm -hmm. And if it is, a, if, if, if it means anything, if for me, it means that no matter where you find yourself in life, you can always start from scratch, that there might be a point in time where for you know no choice of your own everything that you've worked to build has been taken away from you um whether it's an emotional circumstance or whether it's a it's a, it's a physical circumstance right um you know in my own family uh, that was taken away you know from my family through the communist revolution through the cultural revolution through the you know asinine behavior of ferdinand marcos uh you know, who was uh, a tyrant in the Philippines. Uh, I was always taught that you could begin again and that you couldn't look, you couldn't look to the past, right? You couldn't worry or feel like life was treating uh, you unfairly. You just had to kind of pick yourself up and start over again. Wow. Um, so that's, that's where I find the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, when I was a kid and I would bitch and moan that life was not fair, my parents would shake their heads at me and basically say, hey, you speak English, you know, shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> because for them, that was what distinguished me having success versus them having to struggle, right? Mm. Was, that, was that language barrier. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to have had opportunities to reinvent myself. And for me, that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. Interesting. I mean, it sounds like your your cultural background, the the particular experience of your parents, has taught you a degree of resilience that, you know, maybe if you were a white kid from the burbs, you might not have had. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I mean, it was it was kind of this kind of shake it off attitude. You know, like we're all going to eat shit sometimes. You got to just get up, shake it off, and you know, start trying, um, with no, no, no guarantee necessarily that, that things are going to work out. Mm -hmm. And so I've always had this spirit to try. Um, I've always been surprised when I fail. Right. (laughs) Um, and I think that it's kind of funny because, you know, I've failed so many times and, you know, maybe it's ego, maybe it's hubris, but I've learned to, to kind of disregard the failure to, to take, you know, data points from that failure and, and ask myself, well, how can we do it better now? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and eventually something begins to work. And, you know, at least at Scratch Labs, what I have learned is that there are so many talented people out there who are better at the job than I am. Right. And so for me, I think the success of Scratch really comes from the fact that I've been able to um, bring on a great team or that I have a team that actually believes in me because they're the ones who are doing the hard work. They're the ones who are kicking ass day to day. They're the ones who are keeping the lights on. Um, you know, I just had an experience that, that, that lent itself towards the beginning of this company, but it's the, the team that I have now, uh, that are really the backbone of, of, of who we are. Wow. Great stuff, man. Uh, yeah, it's pretty fun, right? Yeah, uh, and and you make a kick-ass product, so there's that. Yeah, thank, thanks, <laughs> thanks very much. You know, and and I, and I think that it's not just the product, but it's also the cookbooks. It's the uh, you know, it's it's engaging with our community. It's all of the other products we now make, from our energy chews to our recovery drink mix to our energy bars. It uh, is truly an ecosystem. It's crazy. It's, it's a whole yeah. ecosystem now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well done. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I continue to be a fan. Uh, Thank you. I, I just you wish you much. wouldn't discontinue the pineapple flavor, but that's a separate. Oh, one. everybody wants pineapples. <laughs> All right. You know, like uh, it's definitely something that I have heard. It's definitely something that, that I, I personally am considering. <laughs> well, I'll leave it at that, man. Sure. Thank you so much for the time. This has been an yeah, absolute very treat. welcome. Yeah. yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, the, the, the care and the support. Uh, we definitely wouldn't be here without with, without you and and so many others. Um, you were one of the first who gave us a chance, so I appreciate that very much. Absolutely welcome. Keep keep, keep kicking butt. Thank you. I want to thank my guest Alan Lim for joining me on the poll. To learn more about Scratch Labs, go to scratchlabs.com. That's Scratch with a K. That's it for this episode of The Poll. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to our recent reboot of the Paceline podcast with my new co-host, The Fit Chick, a.k.a. Celine Yeager, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.